This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your story. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. We love telling you quirky stories from our history here on the show. And this one comes to you from Bill Bright, a friend from New Hampshire. It's a story of the best, worst counterfeiter in American history. Emmerich Jutner, also known as Edward Mueller, who lived near Broadway and West 96th Street in Manhattan, eluded the counterfeiting laws from 1938 to 1948, longer than any other maker of the queer in American history. The first 63 years of Jutner's life were upright and respectable. Short, blue-eyed, white-haired, mustachioed, and blessed with a winning, if toothless, grin, Jutner had learned the rudiments of photo engraving in his native Austria. After emigrating to America at 13, he worked as a building superintendent while tinkering with numerous unsuccessful inventions. With his children grown, the newly widowed Jutner retired in 1937 to the Upper West Side, where he lived with his mongrel terrier. He worked as a junk man, picking up discarded appliances and old tires from vacant lots with a pushcart. But he wasn't making enough to live on and soon found himself nearing destitution. So, using his ancient engraving skills, he photographed a dollar bill and recorded the images on sensitized zinc plates, which he then etched in an acid bath. With a little retouching and a small hand press, he was ready to make more money by, well, making more money. The U.S. Secret Service, which has chased counterfeiters since 1865, protecting presidents became part of their mission only in 1901, first noticed Jutner's activity when a phony $1 silver certificate turned up at a cigar store on Broadway near 102nd Street. Even as the agency opened a new case file numbered 880, agents felt everything about the bill was unusual. No one in recent times had considered singles worth the trouble to counterfeit. More importantly, the bill was obviously laughably bad. While U.S. currency was printed on 75% cotton and 25% linen stock with red and blue fibers of various lengths embedded in the paper, Jutner had used cheap bond paper from some corner store. The numbers were fuzzy. Many of the letters were misshaped or illegible. Washington's portrait was, as the Secret Service itself reported, poorly executed. Washington's right shoulder blends with the oval background. The left eye is represented by a black spot. The right eye is almond-shaped. But the bogus singles kept turning up. Those that could be traced had been passed to the subway and elevated lines, and newspaper vendors, bartenders, and other small businesses that handled hundreds, if not thousands, of $1 bills daily. Jutner carefully passed his fakes only at busy times, such as rush hour on the subway. A five-cent fare paid with a phony dollar yielded a 95-cent profit. And as the Secret Service later learned, Jutner never spent a fake in the same store twice and passed only one or two bills a day. 
By December 1939, file 880 contained some 600 counterfeits. The bills grew worse with time. While touching up the plates, Juttner misspelled the president's name as W-A-H-S-I-N-G-T-O-N. Washington. Nonetheless, he kept passing bogus singles throughout World War II despite successive Treasury publicity campaigns. Apparently, many of those who found themselves holding a Juttner counterfeit kept it as a souvenir instead of turning it over to the government. By 1947, the Secret Service held over 5,000 of Juttner's phony singles. Yet, despite what New Yorker writer S. St. Clair McKelway called a manhunt that exceeded in intensity and scope any other manhunt in the chronicles of counterfeiting, Despite thousands of interviews and hundreds of thousands of flyers, the agency didn't have a clue to his identity. A few weeks before Christmas 1947, Juttner's apartment caught fire. New York's bravest, in extinguishing the blaze, piled the old man's junk in an alley where a sudden snowstorm buried it. The homeless old man stayed in Queens with his daughter while his apartment was being repaired. On January 13, 1948, several neighborhood youths noticed some 30 strange-looking $1 bills lying about the alley. Unlike countless businessmen who had accepted Juttner's signals, the kids instantly realized the bills were bogus. One of their parents took some to the West 100th Street Station House, where detectives identified them as counterfeit. The Secret Service quickly identified the tenant, whose singed furnishings had been dumped in the alley, and arrested Juttner when he returned to his apartment a few days later. Juttner had succeeded because he passed no more bogus singles than necessary for his survival, only knocking off a few bills whenever he needed food or help paying his $25 monthly rent. Blandly admitting everything, Juttner was sentenced to a year and a day and fined $1. He was released after four months to live with his daughter and her family. After McElway profiled him in The New Yorker, 20th Century Fox filmed Mr. 880, with Edmund Gwen, renowned as Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street, in the title role. Juttner made more money from the film than he had as a counterfeiter. And great job on that, Robbie, and thanks to Bill Bright, our friend from New Hampshire, for delivering this story, and my goodness, we're not recommending this as a possible retirement hobby, but my goodness, one dollar at a time. Not 20s, not hundreds, dollar at a time. This man had, if anything, great discipline. And what a great story. And we love telling, well, sort of funny stories. I mean, our whole team was laughing at this one. It was quite amusing. Bill Brake, thanks so much again, our friend from New Hampshire. And Emmerich Juttner's story, the best worst counterfeiter in American history, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our regular series, The Backstory, where Alex Cortez dives into names and brands we know, but whose backstories we don't. Take it away, Alex. Horst Schultz was born in Germany at the beginning of World War II. I was born in 39 when the war started. Small village. Uh, there is no hotel. I want to emphasize that in the village. There was none. In fact, I never was in a hotel. I never was in a restaurant before. But when I was 11 years old, I told my parents I would like to work in the hotel business. And they said, well, okay, because they didn't take it serious. But I was possessed with it for some reason. We don't know why. Nobody knows why. I must have read something. I mean, that's what we assume kept on insisting on it. And that was not a good thing to do at the time in a small village in Germany. You, you went into technical jobs. You were honorable if you, be, if, if you would have been an engineer. Now, that was the ultimate honor at the time, or a doctor or something like that, of course. But, but nearly equally, if you were a carpenter or anything, that handwork, handcraft work. And I said hotel business. My, my grandfather asked me not to tell anybody. I was embarrassed. And when you come close to 14, that's a discussion in Germany because you go down in two directions. Either you learn a trade and go to that trade school at the same time, or you go into higher education. And so they ask around, teacher, so what are you going to do? Blah, blah, blah. And they said, you know, I'm going to go trade. What are you going to do? Hotel business. What is that? Well, I'm going to work as a cook and a waiter. Now, that was funny to everybody. The class was screaming, laughing, and when they went home, told their parents, whoa, horse is <laughs> That was funny. And that day, I happened to play in the streets with him to play soccer. I was a little bit late coming home, but by the time I came home, the neighbors already had run to my mother. Oh, but you know what he said in school? Something very terrible. <laughs> but Horse thought he had at least one person in his life who would understand. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, it was an uncle who was kind of, a, to us, the sophisticated part of the company. So I knew he would understand what I'm going to do. And when he came to visit, I was looking forward. We all admired him because he was, in the meantime, a banker pretty well in a major bank and, and well established. He was the intelligent part, the sophisticated part of the company. When he came, I was looking so much forward to tell him and to finally have an ally in what I want to do. So I said, I want to tell you what I'm going to do. Oh, yeah. And I was, that is, was an exciting moment, always. And I told him, and he was absolutely appalled that I would do that. Appalled. So you're going to work and in, in, uh, carry beer around with, with flat feet, he said, in fact, meaning work down in the, in the railroad station or whatever. And that's what he saw. And was totally, he was appalled that I would do that. You have to do, learn something decent that was not decent. Uh, slowly, my parents started to inquire and found there is a way to go to a boarding school about 100 kilometers away, a hotel boarding school. And then you get placed into hotels from there. That's what they did. So I left home when I was 14 found then the best hotel in the region after that to work as an apprentice, which meant busboy. 
which meant you did everything. The beginning, you washed dishes, you cleaned the ashtrays was the only thing you were allowed to clean or do in the restaurant in the beginning, in the very beginning, and done. And finally, and wash dishes, wash glasses, sorting out, come in the morning before the breakfast, clean the room, clean it after breakfast, clean it before lunch, etc., etc. I mean, it's nearly all amount of cleaning all day long. And in fact, it was kind of funny when in the very beginning of the first few days there, the maitre d', who was an exceptional gentleman, his name was Carl Seidler, truly exceptional human being that you run across once in a while. And he told us there were others that started at the same time. And we lived in a dorm, in a dorm room in the hotel. And he told us now from now on, when you come to work, don't just come to work. Come to work to be excellent in what you're doing. Oh, excellent. That went over my head, obviously, at a bit 14. Oh, excellent in what I'm doing. Excellent in cleaning ashtrays and excellent washing dishes and glasses and cleaning floors and so on. Well, yeah, we'll do it as excellent as I can. I didn't get the gist of what he's saying. In fact, the, the funny thing is he used the word excellent, which is really not a German word. He used that word all the time. He used German words too, but he used that word excellent, excellence. I mean, in fact, sometimes when he passed you, he looked in the eyes as excellence. He kept reminding you and selling us on doing better. And that went over my head, but slowly I grasped his thinking because not because of what he said, because how he lived. What he did, he was a human being of excellence. Everything he did. And he, he would have never en entered a restaurant without looking absolutely perfect, working in tails at a time. Totally perfect. Perfection in everything he did. So you got a sense of what he meant with excellence. Uh, tell the story when uh, you work during the week, once a week you go to trade school. And when the trade school, after two years, well, I was 16, just turned 16, when the teacher asked us, All right, now I want you to write an essay, three pages of what you now feel about your work, your profession. Now, going back, what do you do? You contemplate what, you, what you're going to write. And I, I got hit that night, very like a revelation that night. I worked in, in a corner and I felt the melody coming into the room. I mean it, you could feel it when he entered the room. You just knew it. He had a presence that it penetrated. And I turned around and he just approached the table and I saw something that, and I recognized something that I'd seen before, but it didn't really recognize it, didn't really feel it. The guests on the table that he approached were proud that he came to them. Well, this, and, 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 and it was very, very visual. You, you could actually see it in that moment. I said, wow. And I looked around. Now, compare that with what I had been told. I had been told by my parents, by everybody, once I got that job in the finest hotel in the region, now we could never go to a hotel like that. This hotel is only for fine ladies and gentlemen. Only for fine ladies and gentlemen go there. Now behave yourself accordingly. Now I wasn't told that once. I was told that a hundred times. Uh, in fact, the general manager of the hotel, when I arrived there the first day, told me basically the same thing. 
And now I look at that moment, the Medity, those fine ladies and gentlemen, and they were. We were the finest hotel close to Bonn, which was at the time the capital of West Germany. And all the diplomats and so on came in that hotel. But I saw that. This method, these people were proud that he came to the table. And I suddenly realized everybody in the room thinks that Karl Zeidler is the most important person in the room. Everybody respects him. I had the realization that was, that was there all the time. I, it, it, just didn't, it just didn't hit me clearly. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I can define myself. I'm not defined by my, by my job, but the name of the job is, I define myself how I execute my life, including my job. And it, my job to a great extent, because that's where I spent my life, my time. And it was a major moment, truly a major moment in my life. And I wrote about that, and I wrote a name that is a, we are ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. The very same motto of the Ritz-Carlton Hotels. Because we're listening to its eventual co-founder. We can, be, we can define ourselves if we define ourselves as such. Or we define ourselves as servants. By not being excellent in what we're doing. I got the point of excellence. I got it very strongly. I'm working in San Francisco in the Hilton as a room service waiter. I had come a few months before to the U.S. with the intent of going back to Europe within the next 18 months or so. Several room service supervisors who got promoted. I saw one promoter after only three months being there. And I said, wait a minute, if they get promoted, I can get promoted to room service supervisor. And then go back to Europe. And having learned the language better, having worked in a different culture, and having been promoted, that will be my kickoff for my career in Europe. I could see it. I knew it. I built everything around it. And then a few months later, sure enough, one of the supervisors was promoted out. And another waiter, not I, was promoted into the supervisor's job. That was devastating to me. It was, my whole thinking was around it. It was devastating. And of course, what do we think then? As a young man, I think that was stupidity by management, outrageous, and so on. It took me several months to slowly, and, and I suffered. I truly suffered through that. It took a few months to admit the guy that got the promotion deserved it more. I was very young, partying in the evening, being late in the morning. Be, you, you, I wasn't only tired, you could see from a hundred feet that I was tired as I come to work. And sometimes five minutes late, when my manager asked me to do something related to my work, I said, why, why me, why not the other guys? The gentleman who got promoted never did that. He was in time. He was in a good mood in the morning. He said, yes, I'm happy to, when he was asked something. I then went back to my little room I had a little furnished room in the worst district in, <laughs> in San Francisco, but I went to my little room and talked to my maitre d', who had passed away in the meantime. Believe it or not, I can see my maitre d' in front of me right now. I had a serious conversation with him and I apologized. I went to work to work. 
not to be excellent. I had, it, well, I had drifted away. And I promised him it would never happen again. I absolutely made a commitment there. From now on, I will never go to work for anything less but create excellence in what I'm doing. I made that solemn commitment there for myself, for my major D. And it was fulfilling. It's much more fulfilling than just going to work. Kept on working, was promoted, and uh, had following an, an incredible career. Including co-founding the Ritz-Carlton. We, particularly in our, our industry, we hire because our industry has over 100% turnover. They're constantly open jobs in the hotel and the jobs have to be filled. So, we, so what do we do? We hire. And we said finally, we're not going to do that. We're going to select. We're going to suffer through the open job until we have somebody who actually fits into it. By the way, we went to the point, it, it took an average of 10 interviews before we filled the job, including dishwashers. But we didn't fill them. So we created a profile around each job category and then hired against this profile. We know that was the talent really needed for this job. For example, doormen. We interviewed our five top doormen that they had all one thing in common. Their hobby was gardening. Now, wow. With other words, they like to be outside. And the doormen, but what? What would we have done in hiring somebody? We probably would have liked somebody that loves computer work in a room somewhere by himself, and we put him in as a doorman and vice versa. But so we did selection and done, of course, orientation. And that's a, that was one of the keys, again, of our success. I'm absolutely zealous about that, that the orientation being done in nearly every company is totally wrong. What happens most of the time most of the time, the new employee, let's say it's a hotel, it could be any business. The new waiter comes to work. The manager makes his, we're a team speech, which is pretty pathetic. It happens everywhere. We're a team here. And then, and then what? What is a team? A team is a group of people who help each other toward a common goal, objective, vision. But the goal is not being given, just we're a team. And so Bill, the new waiter, now after the team speech, the boss said, now Bill, work with Joe over here because Joe knows the ropes. Which is really funny because you're not in a rope business, but somehow he knows ropes. And we turn him over and Joe, that's there nine, nine months in Nostrop, tells Bill on the way to the kitchen, this company is no good. That's his orientation. What do we possibly expect from that employee? It's crazy. Our orientation, we went so far as to the first day, orientation has to happen the first day. Because that is when people are willing to change their behavior. Because the first day to work is a significant emotional event when you can impact behavior. So we didn't do the second day, the first day. And so far that when 
we needed a certain job to be filled and we found an ideal candidate. We offered a job to the candidate, but he couldn't come to work until the day of orientation, but we paid him. The first day had to be oriented. And the first day we talked about who we are, how do we treat guests, where are we going, what is the dream of this organization? We invited them to be part of the dream, not part of the function. We hired them and oriented them to be part of a dream, the vision of the company, to be the leader in the service industry in the world in our case. Join this dream, but we connected to the motive of the dream, also the first day. And here's why we dream about that, because that will create respect for all of us. We connected ours to them. That creates opportunity for all of us. That creates honor for all of us. We define ourselves together. That creates more income for all of us. So that's why we have, that's why you have to join this dream. And Horst spoke to the very first orientation of every single one of their hotels across the world and said this. I'm president of this company. I am very important. And you could feel this shock going through the room. Anybody saying, said, oh, no, where I have ended here. And I said, but so are you. So are you. No human being. And I mean it can claim importance over the name human being unless that person is crazy and I'm not crazy. And as far as your job is concerned, if you don't show up when we open the hotel and we don't make beds, we have a disaster. If we don't wash dishes, we have a disaster. If we don't check in people, we have a disaster. If we don't cook food, we have a disaster. You are very important and your job is very important. As far as my job is concerned, Nobody even know if it, knows if I don't show up. You know, I, I like to read to people in hospitality, in services hospitality. Uh, I like to read always the letter that St. Benedict wrote to his monasteries as to how to treat a guest that arrives. He wrote then, if a guest arrives, treat him as if it was Jesus himself and, and bow down and maybe prostrate in front of him and total attention, and join him for dinner, if, for the meal, if he's by himself. The time men tra traveled by themselves, of course. It was in the year 500. And, and even the abbe should join him for dinner. Even if the abbe is on a fast, he should break it and be with that guest because it is Jesus himself. Which is exactly what Horst himself did, putting him on the road a lot and making it harder for his bride. 200, 250 days travel a year. It was very difficult, and we had to learn how to communicate. And the, the, the worst thing you do, and, and mind you, I, I was opening a hotel in Asia, two hotels in Asia. I come back after three weeks, and I, and I, I walk in, and I'm taken over. We got left, and my wife was going right with the kids. I had to learn to accept that this is my wife's decision. The decisions at home are the, my wife's decisions. She communicated, she learned how to communicate so that I was filled in, and we worked very hard on that. But once I came to the realization what my wife was doing there, and I, I, took, I took it for granted too, I mean, come on. 
you know. But I, I, I come slowly to the recognition, my goodness, what, what she does. And, and of course, then you have moments when I'm home two days and we have four children, three of them very small, driving to the school, picking them up, different schools on what the work it is. And you come to respect. And that is what I realized suddenly. I didn't respect what my wife was doing in the beginning. I have to respect it. I have to honor it. I realized I don't, it's not enough to love my wife. I have to honor her. I have to honor her. And what I don't. So the, this realization, it evolved. It, it, it evolved our being able to handle this. She convinced me it's time to retire though now. It's time to give up. I mean, it's, this is enough. Or this is, so I, 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 I left Ritz-Carlton and told that I'm leaving. In fact, we announced it throughout the company on closed circuit because everybody knew me. I opened every Ritz-Carlton. I did the orientation in the first 55 Ritz-Carlton's. It's not somebody. I did it. It doesn't matter if that was Shanghai or Hawaii or Philadelphia. I was there to open the hotel. I had training. So I knew all the employees. I was close to them. So I had to announce to everybody that I'm leaving. And so somebody, uh, the leader familiar to them all was leaving. That wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for me. And we left on a Friday and I'm of course crying. On one hand, it had to be done. On the other hand, crying anyway, leaving the, leaving the people, not leaving the job, leaving the people. And then on Monday, I said to my wife, I'm going to do it one more time. And she said, are you out of your mind? You, you, you retired on Friday. You, you, you cannot do that. And this is, this is totally unreasonable that you'd want to do that to me again. And I realized, and I said, you're right. Maybe just a little bit, but, but you're right. But a couple of days later, she said, I gave that a lot of thought. That's who you are. I will support you. But let's not exaggerate this time. I will support you. I, I'm your wife, and I'm here to support you. And because I know so much that's who you are. So I started Capella Hotel Company. When I walked out the day when I left Ritz-Carlton, I parked always in front of the hotel. And I walked through the hotel, through the connection to the office building, and went to my office 300 yards or whatever. I could have parked in the office building, but I didn't want to go to work in an office. I want to work in a hotel. So I walked through it, walked through the restaurant, through the, through the pastry shop, stole a couple of sweet rolls, etc. That was my routine. And I parked in front of the hotel. I had my spot in front of the hotel. And the last day, my wife picked me up and children. We got the last files. We said goodbye. And in the elevator, I said, ah, I didn't cry. And as I walked out, all the employees from downtown the hotel and here were lining my way from the elevator and the office building all the way to my car. And there I see people that started as dishwashers who were now department heads. I see people that were successful who were crying and I was crying. And, uh, and I saw, for example, I saw E.B. who came in as a refugee from Nairobi, working as a dishwasher. 
And he's now, by the way, uh, manager in a Marriott over here in the neighborhood. Was long-time hotel manager in the Ritz-Carlton downtown. He became in as a dishwasher. And it was, I saw him in orientation. I gave the orientation. But soon later, I walked by the dishwashing area, and I've forgotten who that was. And there was this one kid who said very friendly, hello, good morning, sir, how are you today? And remember, noticing that he's very clean. It's a very dirty job, believe me, steam and dirty. But he looked very, very clean. So I didn't give him much other thought. But a couple of days later, as I walked by again, again, sir, good morning, how are you today? And I look, is this refugee? He was staying in front of the dishwasher, could see even his shoes were shining. I said, wait a minute. And I said to the, to the head of the department, this kid, is he working at all? I mean, he's always clean. He's not working. Right away, my suspicion, I guess that's my, my, my German cynicism that came through. I said, he's so, he's so clean, and he, he can't be working. He said, Ms. Schulze, you're wrong. He's the hardest worker I have. But he's so proud. He changes a couple of times a day. He's a proud young man. He works unbelievably hard. Whoa, yeah. Pretty soon I come, go through the area again, and he's working room services away there. The room service manager asked for him because he was exceptional. He became a waiter. A few months later, he worked as a captain in banquet. Everybody wanted him. He grew and grew. See, see this man created excellence in what he was doing. And he gets the reward. Everybody gets the reward. The reward is going to come sooner or later. And, and here's this dishwasher who became a hotel manager, a little refugee from Nairobi. And he, he realized, I define myself. I define myself as excellent. And you get the rewards. Rewards always come with that. Even if it is just knowing I truly am the best here. In America, to create difference is it's truly up to you. That's why I get so annoyed when people blame other things. In this country, it's up to you. Create excellence and you will get the rewards. And that is not true in other countries. There is still a hierarchy situation. Now, it's, I feel it's better, frankly. But during my career time, I could not have, no matter how good I would have done a job, I would have become the major D somewhere, but not the general manager. After all, the general manager has to come from a certain college, etc., etc. And that's why this is the land of opportunity. And it is so angering me when Americans say we don't have opportunity. Everybody has to, everybody. And, and, and we still sometimes blame others when we don't make it. There's only one person to blame. And I can introduce you to him. Go in the washroom, look in the mirror, and you will see him. Period. Of course, there's circumstances of illness and so on. Of course, we know that all. But as a generality, we always blame society. We blame the president. We blame the mayor. We blame this. We blame. Stop blaming. It's not necessary. It's wrong in this country because this country gives you the opportunity that you want. Period. And what storytelling, folks, and what lessons, what life lessons? You've been listening to Horst Schultz, co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton. 
author of Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a World of Compromise. Don't just buy one book, buy two. Go to Amazon, go wherever you need to go. Get the book, read the book, and pass around this file to everybody you know. Every school teacher, anyone who influences another human being, anybody who runs anything needs to listen to this. Because excellence is within reach of everybody. If somebody would just, well, introduce them to excellence. And my goodness, how he dealt with not getting that promotion all those years back. And he looked within and he looked in the mirror and he realized that guy deserved the promotion. And he made a vow to himself and to, as he put it, his maitre d'. Because that guy had passed, but he was still in, forced. And he said, I went to work to work, not to be excellent. I made a promise to myself. I made a solemn commitment to be excellent and to pursue excellence. And I love what he said about serving. And he said that he talked about that letter to St. Benedict that he wrote to monasteries on how to treat guests. Treat them as if Jesus Christ himself had arrived. What a thing to say. Horst Schultz's story, a great American immigrant story, a great American story, and a great backstory, a part of our backstory series here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The term comic book is one of the great misnomers in entertainment, but they're not books, and they're not comical. This American industry has produced cultural icons that are recognized in every corner of the globe. By taking a look inside the pages of the comic book superhero, we can learn much about ourselves and the world around us. Here's Greg Hengler. Once there was a world without comic books. Like jazz and like baseball, like so much that is distinctly American, the comic book is born in the country's margins. In the early 1930s, two immigrant entrepreneurs, Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, run a small publishing company putting out pulp magazines. Here's comic writers Mark Wade and Gerard Jones. Some people did jail time for these magazines in the 30s. So they were, they were pornography by the standards of the 30s. Harry Donenfeld almost went to jail. He had to talk one of his employees into taking the rap for him in exchange for a job for life. The handwriting came on the wall about 37, 38. He thought, you know what, maybe Spicy Pulps is not where I want to be if the law is going to be breathing down my neck. For a country in the midst of the Great Depression, newspaper comic strips, or funnies, are a popular, cheap, and humorous amusement. Comic books are simply reprints of newspaper comic strips. In 1935, a 45-year-old former U.S. Army major and prolific pulp magazine writer named Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson is inspired to put out his own comic book. But unlike the others, he will feature original comic material created by freelance cartoonists. January 11, 1935, you go to the newsstands in New York and you find on them Fun Comics number one, the very first DC comic. 
Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson had a sense, not just that this is filler, but that new material might find its own audience. The major needs business partners, and Donenfeld and Liebowitz need less racy material to publish. In 1937, the three men enter into a partnership, and Detective Comics, the comic that would give DC its name, hits the stands. As the title promises, Detective Comics differs from comic strips and books. Humor is giving way to crime fighting. At the same time in Cleveland, Ohio, two high school students, sons of Jewish immigrants, are escaping the struggles of their everyday lives into a fantasy world of their own making. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster are shy and unpopular in school, unsuccessful with the girls and insecure about their bespectacled appearance and physical abilities. They lose themselves in science fiction magazines and nurture fantasies of power and success. Here's comic illustrator Arlen Schumer and comic book historian Danny Fingeroth. I think it was the year 1934. It was a hot summer night, and Jerry Siegel, the teenage writer, couldn't sleep at night. He was tossing and turning. He had this dream in which he kept having these flashes of a character that would become a combination of Samson and Hercules and a dozen other characters from the Bible to the comic strips to the serials in the movie theater. He wrote it all down. The very next morning, he runs over to his friend Joe Schuster's house, his artist friend, and he tells him the story of this superheroic character. And Joe Schuster starts making the original drawings. Joe Schuster was a bodybuilder and fascinated with uh, bodybuilding magazines, fascinated with images of acrobats, the tights, the cape. You can see all that in Superman's costume. Jerry Siegel's father died in a robbery when Jerry was a teenager. And the perpetrators were never caught. So he had this very immediate, visceral reason to hate crime. And I think Superman for him was a character who could, in a fantasy way, prevent things like that from happening. Here's Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I was quite meek and I was quite mild. And I thought, gee, wouldn't it be great if I was a mighty person and his girls didn't know that this clot here is really somebody special. I was very small and I was always pushed around by bullies and so forth. So that was one of my dreams. I took courses in bodybuilding and weightlifting. I don't know if it helped, but I made an effort. In the artistic world of the 1930s, comic books ranked just above the adult magazine industry. Comic strip creators are very rich celebrities. Guys like Chester Gould with Dick Tracy, Al Cap with Little Abner, Alex Raymond with Flash Gordon, and Hal Foster with Tarzan. Siegel and Schuster see this as a golden opportunity. They submit their Superman creation to newspaper editors across the country, 
and in turn, every one of them promptly rejects it, some more than once. Here's DC artist Neil Adams. Nobody liked it. This was a, an anomaly. This was, I mean, nobody else was doing it. Everybody was doing cowboys, detective, science fiction type things. These two 17-year-old Jewish kids in Cleveland, Ohio, created a genre. Meanwhile, Donenfeld and Leibowitz are about to launch a new DC comic book title they call Action Comics. Having all but given up hope of ever seeing Superman in newspaper comics, Siegel and Schuster, now both 23, sell the rights of Superman to DC for $130 and go to work. June 1938, the first issue of Action Comics is born, and there he is on the cover, the red-caped crusader in blue tights with a signature S emblazoned on his chest, holding an automobile above his head. That 10-cent comic book sold for over 3.2 million in 2014. Leibowitz cautiously has 200,000 copies printed but receives dealers' requests for more. He keeps the print run small until the fourth issue sells out. By the seventh issue, Action Comics is selling over half a million copies each month. And when we come back, more of this remarkable American story. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our story of comic superheroes. In 1939, Siegel and Schuster realize their dream when the two are asked to create a daily Superman newspaper comic strip and a color page for Sunday. Then DC did something unprecedented. They launched Superman the first comic book title devoted entirely to a single character. Here's the Jimi Hendrix of comic book art, Jim Starenko. The elements that Siegel and Schuster adopted into this comic strip set the pace for virtually everything to come afterward. Superman. The kids in America. <laughs> They went ape. Within two years, these guys had changed the world. The comic book publishers, every one of them said, make superheroes. Superman represents President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal as imagined by those who champion it, without flaws or negative consequences. The young Jewish creators also define their superhero from another planet by what is happening in Nazi Germany. Here's the former president and publisher at DC Comics, Paul Levitz and Jerry Siegel. These are families that have come over from Europe and they're watching whoever they left behind disappear in a very scary fashion. So the characters live for them. 
Nazism was, uh, you know, rising up, and uh, a lot of innocent people were being uh, killed. Countries were being invaded. A lot of innocents uh, slaughtered. And I felt that the world desperately needed a crusader, if only a fictional one. Here's comic writer Dwayne McDuffie. Superman was about the immigrant experience in a very, very powerful way. It's the kid from the old country who brings the best values from the old country, in this case, the old planet, to America, adds it to the pot, and accepts the best part of America. It's a really powerful set of ideas that was really important to people in the 30s and 40s. The newsstand dealers couldn't get enough. Within three issues, they were up to a million copies. It was a phenomenon. There was never anything like it. There was that supermania that hit in 1939 and 1940. We have not seen anything like it in American pop culture since. Beatlemania was not that big. Over 100,000 boys and girls in the United States and Canada are members of the Supermen of America. One mother says... I should like to thank the publishers of Action Comics magazine for including a health page in every issue. Billy has been eating his cereal and drinking his milk regularly since Superman told him to do so. Say, he can do about anything, can't he? Everywhere you go, Superman, he's in your newspaper strip, he's on your radio, there's short cartoons in your theater, he's on clothing. You know, he's in the Macy's Day Parade as a balloon. He's at the World's Fair in costume. It's Superman Day at the World's Fair. It's a big deal. Everybody would have known Superman, from your grandmother right down to the immigrant who just got off of Ellis Island. Everybody would have known. DC is quick to exploit the Superman formula. Editors send out a call to create a second costume superhero to match Superman's success for the poor 18-year-old Jewish cartoonist from the Bronx named Bob Kane. This call does not go unnoticed. Here's Bob Kane. And at DC Comics at that time, the editor came over to me and he said, would you like to create another superhero in the uh, genre of Superman? And let's see, I was making about $25 a week. And I said, how much does Siegel and Schuster, who created Superman make? Well, they make $800 a week apiece. I said, for that kind of money, you'll have a superhero on Monday. By Monday morning, you know, Kane comes back to his editor, Vince Sullivan, and says, here's what I got. And Vince Sullivan knew something good when he saw it. And he said, see, I love it. What do you call it? I said, that's a good question, Vince. (laughs) Maybe we'll call it the Bat-Hyphenated Man. Less than a year after Superman's debut, DC introduced The Batman. I wanted to be Bruce Wayne in my reverie. Instead of a poor kid, I imagined I'd like to be a rich playboy and fight crime at night. I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the comic book characters that have ever been created by affluent, successful people. The characters of longevity always come from a place of oppression, always come from a a place of wanting to break out of the world that you're in. Here's comic artist Erwin Hassan. We all were... Kids from the Bronx. We're all a bunch of schmucks to being talking Jewish. Schmucks. We were innocent, talented guys. Who schmucks? We never drew ourselves. Why? Why should we draw poor little guys? What would inspire us to draw poor little guys? Comic books is an industry made up of people who 
aren't accepted who desperately want to be accepted. So they desperately want to be like mainstream America. It's why Batman's a millionaire and Superman is a farmer, real mainstream, real, real, real America. So they imprint themselves on heroic images that embody all the stuff they wish they were rich and handsome and muscular and able to handle any situation and uh, not tongue-tied. The public loved Batman. The public embraced Batman very quickly, especially when you get into the fourth or fifth Batman adventure and you start to outline his origins. The classic scene of young Bruce Wayne with his parents out behind a theater and his parents are gunned down before his young eyes and that's the moment that made him want to turn into Batman. That's why Batman works so well. Whatever he does, you understand why he does it. He's lost his parents at a random crime in the city, and he wants to make sure that no one else suffers the same horror that he had to go through. Batman's popularity soon rivals Superman's, and business at DC is booming. Within two years, you had Superman, who was so powerful that he could move planets, and then you had Batman, who had no powers at all. He was the opposite. All the other characters fit in between these two characters. In 1939, a young pulp magazine publisher named Martin Goodman launches an enduring enterprise called Marvel Comics. He puts the project under the editorial direction of his hardworking teenage nephew, Stanley Lieber, who writes comic books under the pseudonym of Stan Lee. Here's Stan Lee. Comic books were not respected in those days. I thought someday I would be a writer and I would write books. And I didn't want to use my name on these comics, this name that would one day appear on the great American novel. So I just shortened my name, which had been Stanley Martin Lieber. I shortened the first name, Stanley, to Stan Lee, so that I could save my name for these great things I would later write. A year after launching, Stan Lee creates Marvel's first star superhero, whose popularity comes to rival Superman himself. The ingeniously simple premise behind the red and gold costumed Captain Marvel was an orphan newsboy named Billy Batson, who becomes the most powerful superhuman adult imaginable, merely by speaking the magic word, Shazam. The letters stand for the seven immortal heroes, Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. DC responds to Captain Marvel's popularity by suing Marvel for alleged copyright infringement of Superman. The legal battle drags on for 12 years until 1953, when inevitably, DC's Man of Steel wins, as he always does. In 1939, the war in Europe has begun. Even though America isn't involved yet, many superheroes are. Months after the Hitler-Stalin pact in February 1940, Superman decides to fly himself into enemy territory. The moment you put him in Nazi Germany, you know, war is over. In fact, Look Magazine did a piece with Siegel and Schuster early on. The question was, how would Superman end the war? And the answer was, he flies over, he grabs Hitler by the scruff of the neck, he flies to Russia, grabs Stalin, takes them before the world court, and that's two pages, by the way. So Superman could have ended the war in apparently 14 panels of comics. Bertrand, 
Superman's victory made it into the hands of Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who denounces Superman as a Jew and mocks its creators as physically and intellectually circumcised. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable American story. By the way, just to hear Stanley Lee talk about his own embarrassment, putting his actual real name, Stanley Lieber, on these comic books, because one day he was going to be the next Ernest Hemingway. Well, you don't hear Stan Lee saying that anymore, or any of these guys in this area of work, because this is literature and of the highest caliber and brand around the world. When we continue more on comic book superheroes here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of comic book superheroes, the way it all began here in the United States. And by the way, if you like what you hear, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our podcast. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's get back to the story. Nine months before the United States would officially enter World War II, two Jewish cartoonists create a character who is ready to take on the Nazis who bursts on the scene with an unforgettable cover. Here's Jim Starenko and comic historian Bradford Wright. Captain America threw a smashing right cross to the jaw of Adolf Hitler. That said everything about the character. They got hate mail for that. Uh, They got hate mail from isolationists. Captain America exploded on the newsstand and sold out of his first issue. In the spring of 1941, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby mixed their patriotic super soldier with political prophecy when Captain America stops an unnamed Asian power from destroying the U.S. Pacific Fleet seven months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Then, in 1941, DC launches Wonder Woman the statuesque Amazon wrapped in the American flag. Here's comic writer and editor, Louise Simonson. She's not an unreasonable icon to have been created. During World War II, women took over a lot of male roles. She's a Rosie the Riveter, only a goddess. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. When the Japanese actually do cripple the Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, the men in tights echo the nations. Batman delivers guns to the men on the front line, and Wonder Woman uses the heads of Hitler, Hirohito, and Mussolini as bowling pins. Here's comic creator Michael Shaban and Stan Lee. The superheroes went off to war with Great gusto. 
week after week, month after month, just pounding the hell out of the Nazis. The stories had so much pro-American propaganda that you'd almost think they were subsidized by the government, but it was just, we felt we had to do that. And then something very interesting happened, which was that comic books were included in care packages that were sent to soldiers, along with chocolate and cigarettes, and comic books became part of the standard reading material for GIs serving in the Second World War, and they liked them. Many of the brightest talents in the comic industry join their superhero creations in the fight. Many enlist. Not all come back. Burt Christman was a young illustrator who, with Garner Fox, created Sandman. But his real love was flying. His real love was adventure. So he joined the Flying Tigers in World War II and tragically was shot down over Burma in the line of service. Stan Lee also served. I felt... I can't be writing about all these comic book heroes and not be fighting myself. After victory in 1945, America welcomes home its real-life heroes. But the star-spangled morale boosters are no longer needed nor wanted. Most get canceled by 1951, including Captain America. There are only three superheroes who are doing well. Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. These three American icons carry the comic book industry on their backs to unprecedented heights when sales reach 100 million a month in 1953. Most of this success is due to DC following their audience to a brand new medium, television. Faster than a speeding bullet. In the 1940s, Superman's mission is defined one way. Superman fights a never-ending battle for truth and justice. By the 1950s and the, uh, the introduction of the Superman television show, of course, it became Truth, Justice, and the American Way. That phrase, the American Way, was all over the place in the 1950s because now we're stuck in a Cold War. In 1954, superheroes faced their greatest battle not against a mad scientist or a foreign enemy, but against the United States Senate. Both houses of the U.S. Senate hold hearings on the nefarious effects of comic books on young minds. Comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. The hearings are a major blow for the comic book industry. Fearing the coercive effects of government censorship, and in an effort to survive, most of the comic book publishers form the Comics Code Authority, a self-governing organization that will police each issue and grant seals of approval. At that time, the comic books were so attacked for the material that they were doing, or if that comic code emblem was not on the book, the book did not get distributed. Just one year after the code's implementation, sales plunge by 75%. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In the 1960s, we're going to the moon. We're already in Vietnam. And because of the government's heavy hand, there are millions of kids who are unfamiliar with comic books. But on a golf course in New York, superhero history is about to change when the publisher of DC Comics, Jack Leibowitz, 
informs the publisher of Marvel Comics, Martin Goodman, that they are having great success with their latest comic, The Justice League, which combines the forces of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, and Aquaman to fight against the forces of evil. Marvel's publisher takes the DC success story to Stan Lee. Lee takes it to his wife. Here's Stan Lee. I had been doing these comics for about 20 years or so, and I really had had it up to here. I felt I want to quit and try something else. I told my wife. So she said, you know, Stan, before you quit, why don't you do one book the way you'd like to do it? Something for people, hopefully, with a higher IQ. I came up with the Fantastic Four. They were trying to be the first people to reach the moon. I had them take a spaceship. The ship is belted by cosmic rays and they have to crash land. And because of the cosmic rays, each of them got a different power. Incredible. Inspired by the space race between the Americans and the Soviet Union, these will be the first superheroes invented out of the atomic age. Mr. Fantastic would over-explain everything the way I tend to do. The thing would say, will you shut up? We got it already. And, and he and the torch were always arguing and fighting. The thing hated being the thing. And the idea of superheroes hating being a superhero was really a novelty. And it produced a lot of psychological richness, at least comparatively speaking, uh, that had not been seen in comic books before. And so it was with the creation of the Fantastic Four that uh, comic books really uh, entered into the modern era. Marvel's decision to cast outsiders as heroes continues when in 1962, Stan Lee unleashes another atomic-aged anti-hero, the Incredible Hulk. I am the least scientific person you'll ever know. So I tried to seem scientific with our characters. I had the Hulk, and he was inundated by gamma rays. That's how he became the Hulk. Now, I wouldn't know a gamma ray if I saw it. I don't know what a gamma ray is, but if it sounds good, I'll use it. And what an American voice, what an American story. The 20th century right into the 21st. Comic book superheroes, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now for the final part of this great story about, well, American comic book superheroes, and so much of it, as we learned, had to do with World War II and these giant villains on the world stage, Hitler and Stalin. And now we're moving along into the 60s and 70s and up to the present. Let's go and return back to where we last left off. Marvel had suddenly emerged 
because Stan Lee created characters with an additional dimension to them. That is, superheroes with problems. This gives Stan Lee an idea. Why not weave a new kind of tale, a teenage superhero? Lee pitches the idea to his boss at Marvel. You say that he's a teenager? A hero can only be an adult. Teenagers are sidekicks. And you say you want him to have problems. Stan, don't you know what a hero is? It's interesting that in the 1930s, uh, you had the country seemingly falling apart. And yet you had these superheroes come in that were totally confident in their ability to resolve these problems. And then in the Kennedy years, the early 60s, things seemed to be fairly stable. And yet you had the Marvel superheroes come in who were vulnerable and, and confused and disoriented. The difference was the baby boomers. They were notoriously self-absorbed. <laughs> All this was magnified in, in popular culture geared towards youth. James Dean, for example, you know, he may look tough on the outside, but his heart is breaking and he wants to be accepted and he's unsure and his parents don't understand him and the world doesn't understand him. Peter Parker is a shy science student who lives with his aunt and uncle. He's bitten by a radioactive spider that gives him spider-like powers. Peter doesn't even consider fighting crime. He goes into show business. But when he fails to stop a thief who later murders his uncle, Peter Parker learns that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. What makes Spider-Man such an enduring character isn't Spider-Man, it's Peter Parker. Clark Kent was a disguise. Peter Parker was a fact. He was a 98-pound weakling. His life sucked. Even if you have the ability to, you know, swing from skyscrapers over the streets of New York, it doesn't help. That endures in the character Spider-Man to this day. In spite of Stan Lee's pessimistic publisher, Spider-Man premieres in the summer of 1962 and goes on to become Marvel's greatest success, second only to DC's Superman. Put simply, story formulas that appeal to the widest audiences tend to proliferate and endure, while those that do not, do neither. Comic books succeed or fail on the merits of their storytelling. But there is one issue that almost every American could rally around, the drug epidemic. In 1971, the Nixon administration reaches out to Stan Lee about doing a Spider-Man series on the dangers of drugs. Here's Stan Lee. We sent that book to the Comic Code office as we were sending all the books, and they rejected the book. I said, why? They said, you're not allowed to mention drugs in the comics. I said, but we're not telling the kids to take drugs. It's an anti-drug message. Sorry. So I was so proud of my publisher. I told him about it, and I said, Martin, I think we ought to put the book out without the seal of approval. He said, do it, Stan. We got more mail from teachers and parents and doctors and everybody all over the country saying how much they loved that book and how delighted they were. Within a week, they had a new meeting of the Comics Code Authority, which was all the publishers, the self-regulating agency, and they rewrote the Comics Code. They rewrote it to such an extent that it's gone. When it comes to the first superhero, 
Superman's durability is proven once again, this time on the big screen, and stars the 25-year-old Juilliard graduate Christopher Reeve. Here's Christopher Reeve. What sets Superman apart is that he has the wisdom to use his power for good. He's got the kind of maturity, or he's got the innocence, really, to look at the world very, very simply. And that's what makes him so different. When he says, I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way, everybody goes, <laughs> you know, but he's not kidding. It was just so perfectly cast. Christopher Reeve is Superman. Nobody else can touch the hem of that cape. It's all right, nothing to get worried about. Here is a character in a world where I didn't feel like I was being paid attention to, in a world where I didn't feel like I mattered. Here is somebody who cares about everybody. Whether you're rich or poor or black or white, Superman cares about everybody. And just in case it ever comes up in trivia, the first words uttered to the courteous Cape Crusader come from a star-struck pimp who sounds like Ric Flair. Excuse me. That's a bad outfit. The 1978 Superman motion picture is one of the biggest money makers in Warner Brothers film history to date. The movie is nominated for three Academy Awards and a new wave of Supermania hits in the wake of the film's success. A wave that rolls into three sequels. I've got you. In the closing years of the Cold War, Inflation is high, and President Jimmy Carter is diagnosing Americans as having a crisis of confidence. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The comic book industry sees a desperate need for strength, confidence, and the courage to use force in the face of evil. Writer-artist Frank Miller gets his big break in 1979 when at the age of 22, when he revives a 1970s vigilante called The Punisher and actually kills people. In the 1970s, there was a growing backlash against crime waves, against what some considered the permissiveness uh, that had crept into American society in the 60s and 70s. And this backlash found reflection in some popular vigilante anti-heroes. In Hollywood, for example, you had the Dirty Harry films. Uh, you could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? In comic books, you had a character like the Punisher. The Punisher was a Vietnam veteran who returned home to find his family murdered uh, in, an, in a gangland killing. Uh, he undertook a one-man war against crime, saying that justice, you know, had failed to punish the guilty. So he's going to exact justice himself. Readers love The Punisher, and Marvel meets their demand. There are cities in Michigan. Oh, shut up. Here again is comic book historian Bradford Wright. People voted for Reagan because he kicked butt, because he came on as a tough guy. And I think that attitude was mirrored in superheroes of the 80s. It's not to say the people who wrote The Punisher believed that, but I think they did tap into a popular mood. In the 1990s, the comic book industry make another attempt to captivate readers. Sex, cynicism, and violence reach a level of occurrence never seen before. By 1993, thousands of comic book stores close. Hundreds of creators lose their jobs. And by 1996, Marvel files for bankruptcy. 
monthly sales fall from 38 million to 7 million. Here's comic writer Marv Wolfman and Dwayne McDuffie. They got darker and darker and darker, and they forgot the core of what most of these superhero comics are, which is about triumphing over adversity. The only way you could tell the villains from the heroes was by whose logo was on the cover. I mean, their behavior was evil, not morally ambiguous. These guys were just flat out, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. He's a guard. The call to action against the dark moral ambiguity will overtake not just the comic book universe, but the real world. One September morning. Here's the CEO of Marvel Comics, Avi Arad. This picture of Spider-Man looking at ground zero, it's compelling, it's emotional. He represents all of us. DC echoes Marvel's sentiment with Superman's response while he gazes at a giant collage of the fallen 9-11 heroes. The one-word bubble reads, Wow. Superheroes endure because they represent basic American beliefs, that there are choices to make between good and evil, that individuals can triumph over adversity. The ones that work are archetypes, made by people who believed and cared. Batman will still be around in a hundred years' time. Comic book writers and artists are doing the same thing that storytellers did drawing the pictures on the caves at Lascaux. We're using story to create context for life. Superheroes have always flourished in times of the greatest American adversity. In the Depression era, we were afraid of whether or not we would be able to put food on the table. We were afraid of being involved in a great world war that would take our freedom away. In the atomic age, we were afraid of radiation. Today, we're afraid of terrorist attacks. And in all of those eras of history, that's when superheroes have enjoyed their greatest resurgence. They're our mythology, they're our heroes. We need ideals to look up to. And, you know, they're not going to let us down. Superman's not going to let us down. Superman's always going to be there. To people all over the world, superheroes embody the values, hopes, and dreams of the greatest nation on the planet. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. And if you like what you heard, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. There's so much more, hundreds of hours of podcasts, free for all to hear. This is Our American Stories.